Tomorrow's sermon is, is going to be about you um, and uh, people in our people ministry and, then, uh, uh, you know, many people in our church. And I want you to listen to it tomorrow very carefully because um, she was a great example of what she just said. Uh, it's a great pregame to what I'm going to talk about tomorrow in the book of Proverbs. So I want you to come listening tomorrow and, and apply it to you because you're here and the people that are in the people ministry. And as I said, uh, other people in our church are not in people ministry. So I want you to be able to get that tomorrow. Now, I'm going to start today bringing you through uh, a three-year program that uh, is uh, going to help you with your Bible. And we'll probably add people as we go through, and uh, we'll probably lose people as we go through. Uh, but uh, you'll be able to get the material to follow up on it. One of the good things about... Uh, what we're going to do here is that we're only going to do it once a month. People ministry, we shut down for summer. We will not shut down uh, in the singles ministry for summer. We'll go right through it. We may have to adjust some things uh, on the days, but we'll work around all of that. But uh, my goal primarily for you is to, is to help you learn your Bible. And I look at uh, who's here today, and, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's really a, good, uh, it's really a good, good deal for us to do. Now, if there's one word, if there's one word that uh, would be synonymous with what I want to do with you in the Bible, one word you want to keep in front of you. If you could boil it down and say, Bob, with all we're going to do, give me one word that I need to focus on that this is going to do for me. It's the word depth. Uh, coming to a depth in the Word of God. Most Christians have a very surface limited knowledge of the Bible. Most pastors do. Um, and it's a thing where uh, the mindset today is not to get very deep in the Word of God. And it's a thing where that you are going to have to do that if you're ever going to learn the Bible. You listen to some of the guys who preach uh, in our church, uh, uh, Danny, uh, Bob Gregg, uh, uh, John Busquette, uh, when they teach. Uh, you can see in a moment there's a depth to them. When I'm talking about depth, I'm talking about listening to somebody's sermon and coming away with nine or ten different sermons out of it. That's depth. And depth when it comes to your Bible is, is knowing how to make your Bible work for you. Uh, knowing how to use your Bible to the point where it becomes uh, the best asset you have in life. And it takes a depth to do that. We're not going to deal with surface stuff here. This is not going to be your typical Bible college mentality. Uh, we're going to learn the Bible, and we're going to do it by developing a depth. And if you do what you need to do with this throughout the uh, next couple of years, you will learn your Bible. And you have a whole month, three weeks between when we do it uh, the next time to get everything down. And, um, you know, we have all the resources. John can get you whatever resources you need. Um, we have everything that you need to help develop you. We have the library or the uh, bookstore over here, which has tremendous things to help you down the line. But we're going to build a depth, and we're going to go down deep when it comes to the Bible, and we're going we're to get the thing to the point where you really begin to, to build some things about uh, the Word of God. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things, and today I want to talk about the fundamentals you have to get down there are some fundamentals about God, the Bible, and you that you have to understand before you try to enter into uh, getting uh, uh, the Word of God. And one of the things that you have to get, the first thing, anyhow, is that when God wrote the Bible, 
he built into his own word, his own systematic theology. Now, when you go to Bible college someplace or you go off somebody to, into a bookstore and you want to study the Bible, you'll find different, um, different books on, on systematic theology. Schaefer wrote a, a book on systematic theology. And people rave about it. Absolutely worthless. Absolutely the worst thing you ever read in your life. You'd be better off getting a mad magazine than trying to get out of that thing. Just disaster. <clears throat> Has no clue about it. And yet he's held up as probably the standard for systematic theology. When God authored his own book, he, he, took, the, he, took, the, um, he took what was rightfully his position to build into it his own way for you to study it. And uh, you can study it your way, man's way, or you can study it God's way. I'm not saying you won't learn some things from Schaefer's systematic theology. I'm not saying you won't learn some things from, from getting into some of these guys. But what I am saying is this. You won't learn it, you won't learn it to the degree that God uh, has it laid out for you to get it. And I'm going to go through and show you how basically easy the Bible really is to learn. And that's the second thing. Man always tries to make it so complicated. And I'm going to do just the opposite. I'm going to make it so simple. I'm going to make it so simple that uh, you'll be wondering why you didn't figure this thing out a long time ago. And that's, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to basically, throughout the course of our study, <coughs> I'm, going <to> teach you <coughs> I'm going to teach you five key ways that you're going to break down your Bible. And I'm going to give them to you now, and then we're going to come through them over the next three years. We'll use them in different places and different times to try to get it all together. Uh, but I'm going to try to, uh, you know, we'll come through it as, as, we, as we study it out. <clears throat> the first way we're going to look at uh, in time, and we'll look at some of it today, uh, is the contrast. Uh, the second thing we're going to look at and, and learn how God does it is association. The third thing that we're going to look at <clears throat> that I'm going to go into great depth with are the key words that God puts in the Bible to, to give you what you need and, what you, what, and, and, and give you the context. Um, the fourth thing that we're going to talk about are the definitive passages or definitive verses in the Bible and how important they are. And we'll build those. We'll, I'll show you those. We'll go through those. Um, and then... The, the, the fifth thing I'm going to show you uh, and give you is the individual breakdowns uh, and the natural divisions of each, uh, each book of the Bible. When we're done here, uh, you will have pretty much at your fingertips not only God's in, internal systematic theology, and I'm going to show it to you, explain it to you. I'm going to, you're going to come away with an understanding of, of church history. You're going to understand of manuscript evidence. You're going to have an understanding of each book of the Bible, how it kind of fits into the overall plan of God. And we'll do this as we come through. Now, I want to talk for a moment about, about contrast. And we're going to talk about this all throughout our, our time. But I want, to, I want to show you some things about your Bible fundamentally. And uh, the first time you find the word divide in your Bible, and that's what contrast is. Contrast is God dividing two things. And the first time you find it is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, where the Bible says that God divided the light from the darkness. Now that's, you don't go three, three verses in Genesis till you get to that verse. And the rest of your Bible was built around that principle. And that's called contrast. And... Uh, 
from that point on, God will use contrast to teach us almost about everything. When you look at your Bible, the Bible in its simplest form is what? Good versus evil. It's light versus darkness. It's God versus the devil. It's right versus wrong. It's heaven versus hell. It's just versus the unjust. It's the quick and the dead. It's the, it's the Jew and the Gentile. It's Israel and the church. God uses first and foremost more than anything else to teach you his word. He'll use contrast. And uh, contrast uh, is uh, an incredible thing. And here's how contrast works. And this is, this is very important that you, you understand this. Because here's how it works. When it, you know, when it comes to contrast in the Bible, what you want to learn to do is you want to look in your Bible for what seems not to fit in your Bible with what you know. And, and that, is a, you know, that is a crucial aspect. You're always going to be asking yourself when you come through the Bible, why is this? And you're not asking why is this because you think there's something wrong with it. You're asking why is this because there's something here that God is using contrast to show you. And you're going to ask yourself, you know what? With what I know, what's wrong with this verse? What's wrong with this verse? I mean, you're going to look at places like Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, which is basically the Sermon on the Mount. And it talks about, blessed are the peacekeepers, so they shall be the children of God. Blessed are the needy, so they shall be filled. Blessed are the, uh, those that hunger after righteousness. So they, and, and you read all of that stuff, and you read that, and then you compare that with Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18, where it says, there's none to do with good, no, not one. And they don't fit together. They don't fit together. One place says that everybody is okay. The other place says there's nobody that does anything good. And when people read that, they, they get confused. And they, they, they don't see it the way God intended it to see. They look at the fact that, you know, how did, how did Nicodemus get born again in John chapter 3? When the Holy Spirit, where God says, a man, you know, except a man be born again, he cannot see the, uh, see the kingdom of God. We use that all the time in salvation. But you ask yourself the question, how did Nicodemus get born again in John 3 when the Holy Spirit didn't even come to Acts chapter 2? You see, that doesn't fit. And most people, they just never ask the question why. Most people just accept the status quo of what somebody says, and they never stop and ask the question What's the difference between the two? Now, let me tell you something. The person that asks the question, looks at it, is somebody who's going to build a depth in their life. The person that just accepts the status quo is always going to be surface all their life. And they're never going to build a depth to them. You're going to ask yourself, why does Hebrews chapter, places like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it says, it's a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And yet you go over to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, it says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. They, they, they contradict. One place says it's a terrible thing to fall into his hand. The other says, casting all your care upon him. And you read those two things, and they don't fit together. And you ask yourself, like in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, how the Bible says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. Half the religions in the world use that for their verse for salvation. And yet, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11, 12, and 13 uh, contradicts that. Romans chapter 10 contradicts that. 
And you know, and you look at places like John chapter 3, verse 9, which says that yeah, he that is born, we've talked about this before, he that is born of God does not commit sin. And then you go over there, uh, you know, in, uh, uh, in 1 John chapter 5, verses, uh, you know, or, excuse me, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, it says, if we say we have no sin, we lie and do not the truth. They don't fit. One place says we don't sin, the other place says that we say we have no sin. And, uh, you know, you, you, you just look at those things and you ask yourself the question, you know, why is that? Why is that? And, uh, you, know, you know, you ask, why does Mark 16, verse 16 through 18, uh, where it talks about he that is baptized, uh, you know, shall be saved. And it looks like it contradicts, you know, everything in the New Testament that, that goes contrary to baptism for salvation. And, you know, you, you, you ask yourself, how come they spoke in tongues over there in, 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 in Acts chapter 2, uh, but you don't find them early, early book of Acts, but then you don't find anybody speaking in tongues for the next, uh, you know, 2,000 years? Why is that? You ask yourself, why is in Acts chapter 2, it's tongues, but in, Act, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, it's unknown tongues? What changed about them? They're not the same. And, and why is it you find Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Church of Christ, Seventh-day Adventists today, but they're, they're nowhere in history before 1800? You see the problem you got? This is, this is, the, this is the answer uh, to uh, all of the issues that man faces when it comes to the Bible. And he can't answer them because he has no depth to them. And the key is contrast. Contrast will illuminate something and puts it right out there and shows you what the truth is. Now, in Bible study, biblical Bible study, talked about in 2 Timothy 2.15, this is what the Bible calls rightly dividing the word of truth. And this is something you're going to learn to do. As we come through this, there's some things that I'm going to teach you that are going to come automatically based on what the Bible says. And one of them is I'm going to show you how to rightly divide the Bible because it's simple, folks. If you don't learn to rightly divide it, then you're going to wrongly divide it. And when you come up against these so-called contradictions in the Bible and you don't know how to deal with them, then you don't know how to rightly divide your Bible. And uh, by the time we're done with this, you will know. You will know. If you stay with it, you will know. You will know. And, uh, you know, uh, again, we're going we're gonna to bring you through uh, a God's systematic theology. And, uh, you, you know, when you study the Bible... You're not studying it to find mistakes in the Bible. And that's a problem that many people have. The first time they see something they don't understand, the first thing they do is equate it with, it's got to be a mistranslation. It's got to be a mistake someplace. But rather, we are going to be looking and taking two places that stand in contrast to each other. They don't match. And yet, we're going to reconcile both passages to put them in the right context. You are studying to show yourself approved unto God, not to how the two verses, uh, 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 two verses to, uh, go together so you can make them say what you want to say or go to the Greek and the Hebrew to get the right uh, reading of the verse because you can't get it. Uh, we're not going to do that. But we're going to study to find out by both verses are absolutely correct. They're both right. They both mean what they say the way they read even though they appear to contradict. Now, that's depth. That's having the ability to look beyond the surface of what the Bible says and understand what God is doing. 
you are studying to put both verses in the right context within the Bible framework uh, to teach the doctrine that God intended it to teach without changing anything in the verse. Now that's systematic theology when it comes to the Bible. That's, that's serious Bible study which develops a depth in you. And that's what we have got to get through. We've got to get to the point where you have some depth to you when it comes to the Bible. That you understand things go down deep in the Word of God. You know, most churches want to grow numerically, which is up. But they all run into problems in time. The bigger they get, actually, the more problems they have. And every church has its issues. But uh, and the reason why they go up and, and, and get into issues is because most churches today want to go this way, but they don't build any depth in their people. It's like building a, it's like building a skyscraper without a foundation. You know, without, without, like building something that's going up in the sky without its roots anchored down in deep. And obviously, if it just sets on top of the ground, it becomes top-heavy. And that's what happens with most churches because most churches have no depth to them. And uh, it, it's a thing where they just don't have, uh, uh, they don't have the, the depth that people understand uh, what they're doing. And serious Bible study will always bring a depth into your life. It'll lay a deep foundation. And in our church, always from day one, it's been the thought of my ministry ever since I understood the concept of ministry, is you can't go up without going down. And the higher you go up, the deeper you got to go. And what it does, it builds a foundation of people in the church who really understand the scriptures and understand the Bible. And most people don't know how to look at churches. They really don't. Every church has issues. Every church has problems. Every church is going to have people who like it, don't like it. And you have that continually. And most people, that's all they are, because they're so shallow, that's all they focus on. And they'll judge a church by who likes it or who don't like it. You never judge a church by that standard. You know the standard you judge a church by? The depth of that church and the people that are in it. How deep do you go? How deep does the church go? How deep does the pastor go? After five or six, seven, eight, ten years, under some guy's ministry, whoever it may be, how deep are the people that were under him? You know, you, you got a church here in Kansas City that somebody was showing me the, their website where the pastor is in the process of working himself out of a job. He, he wants to get out of the ministry, and uh, he put a big Facebook thing on it, made a big deal. And, and this guy's been here now for 30 years. I, I, I know him. I, I, he's been there for 30 years. And uh, he's come to the place now that, uh, you know, he, whatever, for whatever reason, he wants to get out of it, and uh, he wants to, and so he made this big deal. And for 30, at least 30 years, he's had probably what, 20 guys on staff, 30 guys on staff, pastors, all ordained and all this. And yet when they wanted to come to the point where um, he wants to replace himself, for whatever reason, and that's his right, he had to go outside the church and find somebody out someplace else to come in that they thought was worthy to take the church. I want to say something to you. That has got to be the most devastating, embarrassing situation for any pastor who's got the sense that God gave a goose. You've been there 30 years and you've not replaced your, your, yourself yet with somebody that can step up and take over? Are you so arrogant that you think that nobody under you could do what you do? 
that you've got to bring in some outsider someplace, you know, that is going to measure up to the standards that you're going to train? How are you going to train him in a short period of time who you don't know to take your job when you've had guys there for 30 years that you do know that you've never trained? Doesn't that alarm anybody? But that's where we're at today. You never judge a church by its issues. You judge a church by, by the depth of that church and what the people who are there are getting that are dialed in. I, I told you before that churches are like the nation of Israel. You have basically three, three groups of people. You have the Kohathites and the, you know, and the groups that are always around the ark and they're always taking care of the tabernacle. That'd be your inner core group. Then you have the 12 tribes that uh, were really good, uh, and they, but they always had problems one or the other. And then you had the, the, the crowd in the uttermost parts of the camp that were the problem for everybody. And when you look at that thing, that's a picture of any church. A church needs to be successful, that is successful, will have most of their people that they can get in that inner circle of Kohathites uh, the, and the uh, uh, groups, the Jesuite, the groups that are working very close with the tabernacle, and that's where their whole world is. And you'll notice that when you study Israel's history, they never were affected by the mixed multitude. The only ones that were affected by the mixed multitude were the 12 tribes because the 12 tribes weren't dialed into the depth that the Kohathites were and the three families that basically did their job. And every church will only be as strong as the inner circle people who understand what the ministry is and then give their lives to it. And that takes depth because you won't come to that on your own. You'll come to that because you're going to invest your life in the Bible. You're going to learn God's systematic theology. You're going to learn what God wants you to learn. And through the process of you getting into God's mind, the Word of God, He's then going to effuse in your mind exactly what He wants you to do, the way He wants you to do it. And you'll come out of that thing with a depth. And you'll see everything for, for what it is. Now, there's a paper here in front of you that I want you to all to grab. And we're, I'm going to walk through these with you. And these are, these are what I call the uh, uh, 15 rules of Bible study. And they're, they're, uh, they're something that we will, you know, we'll talk about, uh, you know, I'll talk about it briefly today, but there's something that we're going to define in your life. And when we're done today, uh, in three years, these things will be the, the foundation of your Bible. These things will become these things will become automatic in your mind. Uh, right now, they're just rules on a sheet of paper. In the next three years, we need to transfer these to these become the second nature of everything that you do when you look at your Bible. You've got to get these 15 things working inside of you that every time you look at anything in the Bible, these things are always right there showing you, giving you, and getting you where you want to go. And it's, it's a process, but it, it comes to that point. Um, I, uh, and, and I got to say this, you know, there's 15 here. Um, you know, these are the 15 things that, that I used. If somebody else may have 20, somebody else may have 30, somebody else may have five, six. These are what worked for me. I can't speak for what worked for somebody else. And I'm the pastor here. So I'm going to give you what worked for me because it worked for me. It'll work for you. But I, there's nothing. I mean, these aren't the 15 in the Bible. There are 15 things that I have learned in my life by spending 40-plus years in the Bible that have really opened the Bible up to me. And uh, though there may be more, I certainly wouldn't give you any less, but there may be more. Right now, these are the essentials that you need. You get these 15 down, and you'll have it working for you. And then you can add whatever you want to add. Now, let's walk through these, and I want to I emphasize these 
And uh, as I said, we're going to, once we talk about these, then you're going to see us using these, and I will remind you of them over and over and over and over and over again. And the first one, which to me is the most important, and that is before you ask what a verse means, uh, you have to determine the context. And uh, there's a context to everything uh, in the Bible. And there's a, there's a reason. Most people, uh, here again, it comes back to the depth. Most people are so um, unequipped when it comes to the Bible and have no depth in the Bible that they actually think that you approach the Bible just by taking a verse out here and a verse out there and reading it and, and, and trying to apply it to something. There's a rule of, of context in the Bible. There's a reason why he wrote 1 Corinthians. There's a reason why he wrote 2 Corinthians. There's a reason why he wrote Zechariah. There's a reason why he wrote Genesis. There's a reason why he wrote the book of Revelation. For you to properly understand anything in that book, you have to first establish the context of that book. You have to ask yourself, why did God write this? And then you don't stop there. There'll be times, there'll be times on Bible study, you see me do it all the time. And I, I got to be honest with you, it, 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 it irritates me a little bit uh, that after all the years and years and years that I've beat on context, still on Thursday nights sometimes or, or in Bible studies, somebody will ask a question and the answer to what they said is just by reading the first verse and getting the context, but they just, it, it's something you got to discipline yourself to do. In most books of the Bible, the context will be established in the first three or four verses. In most verses in the Bible, the context will be established by going back to the first paragraph mark. And then it may also require for you to go back and get the context of the book. But this is why uh, in my goal in the next couple of years is to give you the context of every book in the Bible because you have to have that. Once you have that, it's a little easier to work on the individual verses if you just follow some basic rules. But the thing that will, I put this for number one because the thing that will mess you up better more than anything else on this planet is to get the wrong context in something. Not understand the true context of what you're at. You have people out there that believe that they can speak in tongues. You have people out there that believe, actually believe you can lose your salvation. You have people out there who believe that uh, they should be meeting on Saturday instead of Sunday. You have people out there that believe all kinds of weird things. The number one answer to why they're messed up and the problems they have is simply one word, context. Whatever they're believing, the verses they're using to try to prove what they're trying to do, they do not have the proper context. And a verse without a context will be a pretext. It will not give you the light and the truth that you need. So you're going to, I'm going to teach you, and it's something that you're going to have to work on. You're going to have to start asking yourself in your own personal Bible study. You're going to have to start asking yourself, what is the context? You're going to have to discipline yourself to that. Uh, you're not going to be able to go out of here and forget that. You're going to have to, if you're going to make this work for you, then these rules are going to have to become the bylaws of your life when it comes to the Bible. And these are things you have to remember. You have to remember these things. Now, the second thing here, and uh, you want to remember this, uh, and this helps with context. You've got to remember that the Bible is written to three groups of people. 
uh, I, I say this all the time. Uh, all the Bible is written for you, for your edification, but not all the Bible is written directly to you. And that is, that is, that is a lost concept today. There's men out there that teach the Bible. There are people in most churches that believe that all the Bible is written directly to them. That's not true. The second thing that you have to get down about your Bible is you have to be able to identify who he's writing to. And this will help you with your context. You have to determine, and I'm going to show you how to do this as we come through it. I'm just giving you the rules today uh, and, and, and try to get through as many of them as we can. I'm going to give you the rules today, and then when we start going through things, then we're going to start looking at them, and I'll show you as we go through how you do that. And obviously, you know, your biggest, you know, your biggest, easiest one is everything in the Old Testament is written to the Jew. Everything in the New Testament is written to the church in a general sense. So there you start with that, and then you're going to have to cut it down from there. But I'll show you how to, I'll show you how to get it in precise. I mean, that's a general truth. The Old Testament to the nation of Israel and the New Testament to the church, that is a general truth. But once you get into the depth of the Bible, you find that you've got to tweak that a little bit. And I'll show you how to do that. Now, there's portions in your Bible where God is, is talking to the Jew, and if you try to apply it into the church age, you're going to die and go to hell. And there's places in there that he's talking to the Gentiles uh, in the Old Testament. There's places there that he's talking to the Gentile nations that he's not talking to the Jews and he's not talking to the church. And then there's places that he's talking to the church that, that he's basically uh, not talking to the Jews or he's not talking to the Gentiles as a group of people, but uh, talking to uh, the church. And you understand that once you become a Christian, you're neither Jew nor Gentile anymore. So you've got three people groups. The biggest mistake that people make is to take something that God wrote to the Jews and put it to the Gentiles, or God something wrote to the church and put it to the Jews, or something God wrote to the Jews and started sticking it into the church. And you've got to know where you're at with that. And that helps you identify the context. It's one of the basic, simple things of the Bible that is absolutely vital, that you have to be able to distinguish who he's writing that to. And that's the first thing, <clears throat> when you ask me a question on Thursday night Bible study, or my Bible study at Lincoln, or when I'm in with you one-on-one, -on -one, <coughs> and somebody asked me a question, the first thing I asked myself uh, in, in, in light of the context is, who's he, who's he speaking to? Who's he writing this to? And you see, it gets kind of, it gets kind of, this is where it gets kind of dicey a little bit, where you got to get some things down and get some depth, because in the New Testament, right in the middle of all the books that are written to the churches, he'll throw in some books that are written to Israel. And if you don't know where they're at and how to de delineate them out, you're going to run right into it. And there's a couple of easy ways to do that, and I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you all that. Now, the third thing. The Bible has proper divisions in it, and you must put those divisions in the right places. Every book in the Bible, oh, start with the Bible. The Bible itself is, has divisions in it. Well, I'm going to teach you those divisions. Obviously, again, the major one is the Old Testament versus the New Testament. But then when you take the Old Testament, you're going to have to divide that into, into fundamentally two places, before the law and after the law, or during the law and then after the law. 
when you get into the New Testament, you're going to have to deal with it where you have the historical uh, first coming of Christ, you have Paul's writings, and then you have the things that, that he's writing to uh, uh, outside the church that you've got to be able to place. And the Bible, Bible has divisions in it. <clears throat> Part of the depth of you understanding your Bible is getting those divisions in the right places. We call them dispensations in one aspect. There's 11 dispensations in the Bible. A dispensation is a period of time when, when God is doing thing one way and he changes it and does it another way. And I'll bring you through those 11 dispensations as we, as we come through. But you need to know that the Bible has, has its proper divisions. And this goes back to rightly dividing the word of truth. You've got to be able to get those divisions in the right place. And as you see what God is saying... Who's he saying it to, to establish the context? And, <clears throat> you know, you have to learn to do that. And <clears throat> it's a thing where most people never look at the Bible in any way, shape, or form like this. They just don't. And it's not hard. The hardest part for you is going to be to stay with these 15 rules and get them automatic in your life. But it's like anything else. Uh, you know your address where you live. Uh, you know, you could close your eyes right now and, and think of what you got in your living room, where everything is at, and where your bedroom, where everything is at, and where your garage, where everything is at, what's hanging on the wall, what's not, what's in the tool bench, what's not, you know, what's in the dishwasher, what's not, what's in the sink, what's not, where the, you, you got that all down. Now, and you got that all down easily because you lived there for so long. So it all becomes second nature. So when it comes to the Bible and the divisions, when you live there long enough, it'll all become second nature to you. That's all. You just got to start living there. You got to start making that book the number one thing in your life, and you got to start going after it. And just you know, you don't have to. <clears throat> you know, you don't have to. You know, you don't have to um, to spend the rest of your life studying it to learn it. You just got to, in a general sense, live there, and you'll get it. I mean, if you just started living in the Bible, where the Bible is everything that you do, and you just come Thursday night, come to this class, come Sunday morning, and do your own Bible study, you're going to learn your Bible. And you know why? Because you live there. <coughs> You'll be whatever you hang out with. <laughs> it's just that simple. And you say, well, how come I don't know the Bible? Because you haven't been hanging out with it the way you should. That's all. You know? And uh, you got to start living where the book is. And when you do that, and you start... You know, you start focusing on the right things. Most people, they try to study the Bible before they get the, <clears throat> all of this down. And therefore, they, they waste a lot of time. <clears throat> I'm not saying they don't learn some things. But there's a proper way that you've got to learn your Bible. And uh, it goes through a systematic system that God has built into his Bible. Now, the fourth thing here, and you've heard me talk about this many, many times, and that's all Scripture has three applications. And in time, you're going to be able to learn to be able to, to divide those out. The Bible has a doctrinal application. The word doctrine simply means to teach. <clears throat> the Bible has a specific teaching, every verse, every chapter, every book, depending on where you're at. And uh, it, it has a, a prophetic truth to it many times, or it has just a standard truth to it uh, many times, but that'll be the doctrinal application. What does it teach? What does it teach? Many times, as I said, it'll be focused around prophecy. Many times it won't be. It'll be just focused around <clears throat> the truth that you must have. When you get into the book of Proverbs, like we're in on Sunday morning, you know, you can basically see 
of the three applications at work. I've talked about it many, many times. First, you have a concept where he says, my son. And we know that, we know that uh, uh, from a doctrinal standpoint, that son is the nation of Israel. And then it says, you know, from a historical application, we know it was Solomon's own son. And then we know from an inspirational application, it's you and me as God's son. Once you see that all books of the Bible and all things in the Bible follow that rule of thumb, then it's, it becomes easy for you. And that's what really makes the Bible come alive. Most pastors, most churches, uh, they'll, they'll have an inspirational application and sometimes maybe have a historical application. But what is missing is the doctrinal application. And people say all the time, you know, well, I go to so-and-so, hear so-and-so preach or this or that, but, you know, he's very boring, he's very dry. And that's because um, the lifeblood of preaching and teaching and the lifeblood of the Bible will always be the doctrinal application. Uh, if the Bible is an engine, like you put in your car, and uh, you have the, uh, the carburetor would be the historical and the, you know, the inspirational would be the engine itself, the spark plug would be the doctrine. Without the spark plug, nothing's going to go anywhere. That's really what fires the Bible up is the doctrinal thing. It gives you the complete overview of what God's doing. And I tell people all the time, <clears throat> the inspirational and the historical is easy. Uh, <clears throat> if you get the doctrinal application down first, then the other two just fall into line. And, you know, I've told you before, and again, it goes in one ear and out the other with most people. You take the book of, you take the book of Psalms. Uh, the book of Psalms is the easiest, probably easiest book in the Bible to figure out doctrinally. And I've told you before, doctrinally, you got three things in Psalms, one of three things. You either got David, uh, you either got the, doctrinally, you got, you got uh, uh, the Jew in the tribulation period, or the Jew at the second coming of Christ, or the Jew in the millennium. And they're all typified by, historically, by David. And it's all typified by David going through his tribulations, David getting the delivery of God, or David living in the high tall timbers when he's right with God and everything is going good. And inspirationally, it's a picture of you and me. It's a picture of you and me going through our tribulation period, you and me being delivered, and then, you know, we're giving God the thanks because, uh, you know, uh, of all that God has done for us. It's, it's not hard. And the doctrinal application will always be the one you want to get down first, and it'll always lead you to the other two. And I'm going to, you know, I, I do that all the time. I, 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 I lay out and show you uh, all the time all the different aspects of the doctrinal application. I'm going to leave here and have a cigarette, so I'll be back in a minute. It's cold up here, man. It's cold. Why don't you turn the air off? Yeah. So I'm going to teach you how to do that. And uh, we'll go through the process in time of, uh, of uh, you, you, you'll learn it. You'll, you'll, you'll learn how to do it, and you'll, you'll, you'll be able to put those things in play. And, and again, this is all the depth of the Bible. This is getting a depth to the Word of God that helps you understand um, where it's at. You have to get the one in there, too. Yeah, it's getting a little warm in here now. Can you turn the air on? <laughs> now, the fifth thing. And this is, a, this is a really important one. We're going to spend some time on this one when we get to this point. 
And this will probably be the first thing that we look at. You want to remember that God chooses the exact words he wants to use uh, and the events recorded to show you something. Take your Bible and come over to John here, the last chapter. I want to show you something God showed me years ago that really changed my whole perspective about the Bible. There's been a series of things in my life over the years of my life that God gave me that really kicked me up to another level, probably, the best way to say it, <clears throat> and really helped me develop myself on that level. And in John chapter, John chapter 21, the last chapter in John, Look at the last verse in that. This is the last thing he says in John. And he says this. Uh, there, are, are, uh, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books uh, that, are, uh, that be written. And uh, that tells me right there that you didn't get everything that, that Christ did written down you didn't get everything he said. There are actually places in the Bible where it says uh, somebody quotes something uh, and you can't find a quote in the Bible. Uh, several places like that. And, you know, it's a thing where when I saw that and I understood it, the great impact of that verse, uh, it really made the Bible even more special to me because if that be true, then I don't have all that God did and I don't have all he said. But what I do have is what he handpicked that he wanted me to have. And when I realized that great truth, the Bible was never the same to me again because I realized that I had something out of everything that was done. <clears throat> it's like the difference between going to, get a, going to get a card for somebody that's really special to you and just going down the aisle and, and, and grabbing one, you know, uh, out of the section. They're all marked there, you know, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, birthday, uh, graduation, you know, and you just, you just go down there and you see the section and you just grab one and, you know, and off you go. And, um, and then you find out that somebody pulled one out of the bereavement section and put it back in the wrong section and you got that one instead, you know. Or you take the time to find a card. You know, you, you really look through them. You want to find something that says exactly what you wanted to say to somebody. You see, you know what God did? God filtered through everything he did and everything he said, and he picked exactly what he wanted to give you and me that was special. Now, once you get that, once you get that, how do you just take a blasé approach to the Bible unless there's something fundamentally really wrong with you? I mean, that's a, that's, I mean the God of the universe <coughs> went through Kmart and Walgreens and went through, you know, all the... And he, he looked through the sections of, of, the, of the things that he wanted to say to you. Took some time and handpicked exactly what he wanted to put in the book. And then gave it to you. And then we say, what? <clears throat> That's a great verse. Obviously, Paul wrote more than to seven churches. Obviously he did. But that's all you got. I, I'm sure that, uh, you know, Matthew, I'm sure Luke wrote other things for him. I'm sure Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, you know out there that uh, uh, last count, there was something like 80 or 90 Gospels. Now, I know some of them were written by, by heretics. I get that. But I guarantee you some of them were written by good people who, who uh, the, the, the Gospels were legitimate as far as what they were saying. But you know what? God didn't use them. He didn't pick them. And you're going to find that scholarship 
going off to Bible college someplace or higher education, higher learning, you're always going to find that they're going to uh, look at those and because they're written in a period of, of Christianity and they're in that area, that they're going to they're add some spiritual weight to them. Like they're of some importance. They're of absolutely no importance. If God didn't handpick it to put it in here, then just like he picked what he put in here for you to have, he didn't put the ones in that he didn't put in because he didn't want you to have them. So the ones he gave you were valuable. The ones that he didn't put in are of no value to you. In other words, you got everything you need in the book that God gave you. And if you can come to that understanding and appreciation of it, then, you know, then you're going you're gonna to get some depth. If you don't, then you never will. You never will. And, you know, just because you come to this class, there's no guarantee you're going to get that depth. The Bible says, study the show thyself, approve, first of all, unto God. And then it says, a workman. You're going to have to do some work. You're going to, have to, you're going to have to make this thing for yourself what you want. Now, the sixth thing, and that is the fact that uh, when you get into your Bible, we start to get some depth, and we'll see this, you'll find that God has three distinct plans revealed in His Word. God has a plan for the universe. That'd be Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Uh, God has a plan for the earth. I think that's Isaiah 45, if I remember right. And then God has a plan for your life. And if you haven't figured it out yet, your life is on this earth, and earth is in the universe. All three plans are separate, but they're all connected. They're like the Trinity. They're all connected. They're all the same, but they're, yet they're all different. They each have a different function. God's plan for the universe is different than God's plan for the earth. God's plan for the universe and the earth is different than his plan for you, but they're all connected. And that's why you can't fulfill God's plan for your life without understanding the other two plans. That's how the connection works. And most of God's people, they never do that. They never think outside of the, the, the neighborhood that they live in. And, uh, I mean, to them, world missions is going to the block party down the street. They, they don't ever get the fact that uh, there, there's more to it and there's, you know, there's, God has a plan and those plans are unfolding and those plans are going to continue to unfold till they all come to flourishing and then uh, you're going to see how they all work. But right now, we need to know those things. The seventh one, and this will be uh, a great one. This should, you come over to Romans here, chapter one on this one. He says, the invisible things of God can be seen by studying the things that God made. Now, this is one of the, this is one of the great uh, hidden principles in the Bible that really unlock a lot of things. They really do. And uh, there's things in the Bible when you, when you look at it and you get something like this uh, that it just changes, again, your whole perspective. And look at Romans 1.20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that God made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they're without excuse. Now that verse simply says that everything God made in His physical creation will be some kind of manifestation of who God is. And that's why He says at the end that the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1, that's the context, they're without excuse. They have the witness of the things that God made. And everything that God makes, He makes after a model of something for himself. When he made those trees back there in Genesis in the garden, he made trees that had seed within itself. 
and those trees produced life by passing seed into the ground, and it kept on going. That's a picture of exactly what you do after you get saved. The seed of the Word of God in you, you pass it on to somebody else, and you reproduce fruit. All laid out in Genesis 1. And you'll find that the Son, the type of, of, of God the Father, you know, got the three aspects. It's got, you know, x-rays, heat rays, light rays. X-rays are a picture of God. Light rays are a picture of Christ. Heat rays are a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, everything. The moon, the type of the Christian, Job 25.5. It doesn't shine by its own light. The moon reflects the light of the sun. As a Christian, you don't shine by your own light. You reflect the light of the sun. What happens when, a, when the earth comes in between uh, the sun and the moon? Well, science calls it an eclipse, but in the Bible, it's you getting out of fellowship with God because the light of the reflection from the sun in your life goes out because the world came in between you. Romans, 9, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Credible. And I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on all day with those examples of that. And, and you find those things where God just, He really, really, really uses the things that He made. Come over to over to Hebrews here. Come over, look at Hebrews chapter 11, I think is where I want to go. This one goes along with that. Now we know that in our world, science, even though they've never seen them, science knows that the fundamental concept that holds the world together is atomic structure. And there's not a scientist on the earth can tell you why an atom uh, who has a proton and neutron in it that are negative, uh, positive charges. Uh, and we know that ne if you take two, two magnets and you put the wrong end together, they repel each other. They won't stay together because one end's positive, one end's negative. And there's not a scientist on this planet that can tell you uh, that why that in an atom, an atomic structure, the negative and the proton uh, will stay together when they're repelling each other. And that's what, and that's the key to an atomic bomb is to be able to split that. When they talk about splitting the atom, they split the neutron and the proton and pull it out and then it unleashes that thing. It's just that simple. And yet there isn't a scientist in this world that understands that uh, the atomic structure is defined in, in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, Now faith is a substance of the things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For my yet the elders retained a good report. Now, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that the things which are seen were not made with things which do appear. You've got a table in front of you that you can see, but it's held together by things you can't see, atoms. And, of course, um, again, atoms are a picture of God. Atoms is a picture of the Bible. It's a picture of everything. Atoms are a contrast, negative and positive, like life, negative and positive. And uh, the very essence of God uh, is found in the things that uh, God uh, has made that you can't see. But if you want to understand Him, understand them. So it all goes all the way down to atomic structure. All the things that God does that holds things together. And you know, the, <coughs> the, uh, the aspect of, of uh, the neutrons of the 
negative and a, a positive not repelling out and, 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 and getting away from each other. It's found over there in Colossians 1 and 2 where he says, by him all things are held together. And that shows you that when you get over there in Second Peter, when the renovation of the earth by fire, fire, that shows you that all God's going to do is take his hand off those atomic atoms and let those things repel each other, and it's going to put out the big holocaust of nuclear blast that's going to burn out the universe you ever saw in your life. It's just that simple. How do you get it? Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Hebrews chapter 11. Understanding the visible things you can't see about God are clearly understood by the things that God did make. And when you follow that line of reasoning and you look around you, why do you think Jesus all the time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was always telling people <coughs> to look at the things around them? He says, you discern the weather by, by, the, by the sun, uh, by, the, uh, uh, by the sunset. You know, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. He says, you, you discern the times and the seasons by looking at the, at the sun in the morning and the evening. But you can't discern the, the things within the Bible. You know what he just did? He just told you that if you want to understand everything in the Bible, go look and look what the things that he made. That's why he made the sun blood red every time it sets. It ain't blood red when it's up in the sky. But every time it goes down at night, it's blood red. That's the last thing you see in the, in the morning when it comes up before it gets very high in the sky. It's blood red. You know why? Because the first thing he wanted you to see and the last thing he wanted you to see is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. He fixed it that way. The invisible things of him. Once you learn that, then you'll take everything that you see that he made and you'll start looking for a spiritual connection to it in the Bible. That's what you do. That's how you do it. That's exactly what a real serious Bible study is when you get to that point in your life. You, you, you start looking at all of these things and they all become second nature to you. And what they all produce is a depth a depth is nothing more than knowing what to look for where. That's all it is. That's all the Bible is. The Bible is not some... Comp it's just disciplining yourself to know where to look for what when. That's all it is. If you do that and you discipline yourself to that, you start training yourself that way, hey, I'm telling you guys, it's because you're coming here and I'm putting it out. It isn't going to fall in your head and your heart and you're going to walk out of here. You're going to have to work with it. You're going to have to take these things, and this is the beauty of only doing it once a month. Now you have three whole weeks or so to be able to process this, to be able to go back through the material, get a notebook down, get it down, begin to highlight those things that you need. And I would, you know, I would say that, you know, by the end of this three-year course, you have, you know, 40 or 50 legal pads or, or your, your notebooks filled with subjects that you now have your own personal library based on the Bible. You can always go back to. You can always look up something. And then in time, as you grow through this, you put, put these things in your Bible. You get, in, you get the things in your Bible that you need. You don't put it all in. You just the things that you need. Now, the eighth thing here <coughs> is, the, is the fact that the Bible is a no private interpretation. And the Bible is of no private interpretation. In other words, you don't read a passage of Scripture and you decide what it means. The Bible will always interpret itself. I gave you the example a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night about capital punishment, where people think that, uh, you know, when it says, thou shalt not kill, that they won't go to war. 
Then I took you over to the New Testament and showed you where Jesus defined that, interpreted that by saying, thou shalt do no murder. He clearly showed you the difference between the two. And when you see that and you understand that, that's what the Bible does. And that's, in time, you'll learn how to do that. In time, you'll learn how to take the Word of God and you'll learn how to be able to uh, let the Bible unfold itself for you. The Bible is its own... Com- I, I, listen, I got commentaries by all the good guys that are out there. I got Ruckman's commentaries. I, uh, I, got, I got some good commentaries that are decent from a, uh, from a historical application out of some of the uh, Bible colleges out there that they use. They're lame when it comes to... Um, you know, to teach anything depth about the Bible, but they're good as far as figuring out historically what's going on. I've got books, we sell them in there, that will help you uh, get to the place where you can figure this out and figure that out. But at the end of the day, uh, you've got to come to the point in your life, in a place in your life, where you can let the Bible unfold itself for you. And I'm not saying those books aren't valuable. I use them all the time, and I always uh, like to see what somebody else's thought is on something and, uh, and they'll get an idea. They may spark something that I didn't see, spark something that I need to think about, spark something that I need to put in here. But you're going to find out as we come through this that the greatest, greatest asset that you have is that Bible interpreting itself. It'll always tell you exactly what it means. You just got to know where to go. And we'll show you how to do that. You'll get to that point at some point in your life. You will. It's not that, uh, it's not that, it's not that hard. The ninth one is, again, going back to the individual words in the Bible that are key. God's picked about, oh, I'd say 15 major words and about maybe another six or seven or eight or nine, ten secondary words that you have to learn. And uh, in the 15 that are the major ones, wherever you find them, it'll always tell you the context. This is what, how the Bible, he chose the words. So you can see the danger in taking a new translation that changes words. And, uh, you know, there's a big debate about can a man get saved with, the, with, the, with another Bible? And there's those who think he can and there's those who think he can't. I personally think a guy can. I mean, uh, it, those books do contain... Uh, there may not be the Word of God, but they do contain uh, the, the Word of God. And I can lead a guy to Christ without a Bible. So, I mean, I can lead a guy to Christ with an NAV. I would just know what verses not to use and what verses to use. I mean, it does have the Word of God in it. It just isn't the perfect Word of God. So I, I, I don't fight if somebody wants to take that position. I, that's fine. I, I don't really care. I personally think you probably could. But I'll tell you what you cannot do with a new Bible. You can't grow and learn the Bible. Because the devil's done one thing, and that is that he's destroyed all the cross-references. He's taken everything out of it that is God's systematic theology. He's destroyed the words. And once you take the words out, you've lost your Bible. Because the Bible's built on, on individual words. Ever notice over there in the Gospels where uh, he keeps... He says, he that keepeth my words, uh, he makes so much emphasis on the words, how important the words are, and not to change and mess with the words. And when somebody does that, then they lose the whole aspect of the Bible because the key to the Bible are the words. And uh, once you take those out, then you're lost. And the devil knew it. The devil, the devil's pretty smart. 
he knew that his religion, which is the Roman Catholic Church, he knew it would always do it a, a fair job of damning people's souls and get them to hell. And he's got enough other false religions out there, other little secondary ones that come out of the Roman Catholic Church, like the you know, Church of Christ and Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and all that crowd. Uh, he's got them. So he, he's getting, he's getting, uh, he's getting uh, plenty of people in hell. His goal by putting out a new translation to God's people uh, was never to damn Christians or people uh, that in the New Testament churches to hell. I mean, he may get some that way, but he's going to get all he wants from the churches that he has. That was not his goal. His goal was that he wanted to produce a Bible that God's people who are saved would accept as God's word. And because of what he did to it, that he destroyed and took all the references out that you cannot grow through it, that he produced a, an effeminate Christianity that didn't know anything about the Bible. And in doing that, he would accomplish his overall goal because then nobody would get the burden to win people to Christ and, you know, the rest takes care of itself. So his goal necessarily with all the new Bibles wasn't to damn people's souls to hell because primarily those Bibles go into the hands of Christians. His goal was to stop Christianity cold with a Bible that was dead, that had no life in it, that could teach you anything about God because it's all destroyed, and then he knew that Christianity would, would fold up and fall apart and just as it has. You know, I get, I get, uh, I get uh, criticized all the time, you know, for talking about other churches and talking about other pastors. And it's a criticism that I, duly I deserve. I mean, I do. I mean, I do. Uh, but, it, you know, I, I, you better look at my motive of why I do it. And my motive is the fact that there's some things out there that will hurt you. You know, the same people who don't like me talking about other churches and pastors and whining about it are the same kind of people that probably complained about their moms and dads correcting them when they were growing up. And let me tell you something. Your mom and dad saw some things out there that would bite you and wanted to keep you from it. And I'm telling you the same thing. There's some people out there that, that some things out there in churches that will bite you. I'm going to tell you a story that I would never tell outside this group. And it just happened within the last couple of days. And... Um, I'm going to put it into an ambiguous thing so nobody will trace it back to anything. We had a couple that uh, left our church a number of years ago, and they were really good friends of mine. And he really was instrumental, both of them, when we started our church. Uh, they got hooked up with a, with a couple that, that also came to our church that they were friends with that was just a real, real problem couple. I mean... I mean, uh, I think they, we lovingly, she lived over in, in, in Kansas someplace, and they, I know they lived on Elm Street, and we lovingly called her the Nightmare on Elm Street after the movie. <laughs> <coughs> lovingly, lovingly. This woman was something else. She had her nose in everything, and she caused more problems than, than I mean, she did. And so it all got kind of sideways, you know, over some things, and we, we lost this good couple. And I, and I really, it really hurt me because they were my dear friends and I love them very much. And uh, <clears throat> I hadn't seen him or talked to him for like six or seven years. And course of events happened here not too long ago and uh, we all bumped into each other again. And we were forced through the situation to spend some, some time together. 
And, you know, time heals all wounds. And the moment we saw them, you know, uh, I saw them, uh, you know, it was, they, they were like everything was fine. And uh, we hugged and we talked. And it was like a nice reunion. And, you know, we just kind of forgot the past. I certainly did. I was just happy to have back in a relationship with them, you know. And, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, we were, we were together uh, one night and I was talking to the guy. And again, I'm not telling you this for any other reason that I'm, I just, you need to hear this. And I would not say it outside this room. I wouldn't say it in church because I don't want somebody thinking I'm saying it for the wrong reason. I'm just telling you because you're all young. You're all impressionable. And, you know, I think that you need to hear things like this just to, because of what I do say sometimes. And, you know, I can't get up and just validate myself because, I mean, I do. I bet I, you know, who's going to believe, you know, I mean. But it's always good when somebody who gets an attitude and leaves comes back to a conclusion and then tells you what their conclusion was. And, you know, I'm I'm seriously praying for this couple. And I think that God opened up a door that is really for a reason, for a purpose. And one night he pulled me aside and he took me out in the hallway and he said, Bob, I want to tell you something. He says, when we left the church about six, seven years ago, he said, I want you to know, he says, we, we went to every church in town. He says, we listened to every pastor. He started naming them off. And I asked him, did you go here? And he said, yeah, we went there. Did you go, yeah. And, and I, yeah, I didn't know where he was going with all this. And he says, I, he says, and then he said this, he says, and I know that you've told your people in your church you had to go to another church sometime just to see, you know, what's really out there. And he says, and we, we, we didn't do it that way. We, we left. And basically we left, you know, we left wrong. And he says, but he said, we went everywhere, Bob. We went here. We went there. We, 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 we're now going to a church over here. We're not really happy there. But he said, I want to tell you that. He looked me right in the eye. He put his hands on both my shoulders, and he looked me right in the eye, and he says, we've been to every church in this town looking for one that taught the Bible like you do. There is none. We couldn't find a church. We couldn't find a pastor. We couldn't find anybody who gave us what you gave us. And he said, I just wanted you to know that, from me to you, that we looked everywhere. You keep on doing whatever you're doing. And he said, you know what? We went everywhere. We tried every place we could. Nobody gave us the Bible like we got when we were with you. Now, I'm not saying that to blow my own horn or saying that or this. I'm just saying that to tell you this. There's some things out there that will hurt you. And you know what he was essence in telling me? He said, you know what? Sometimes you got to lose what you have to realize what you really have. He said, sometimes, you know, you get your nose bent on a joint about something that really doesn't matter and lose the thing that eternally would have taken your family and you and kept you where God wanted you to be. And I thought to myself, that's probably the greatest thing that anybody's ever said to me about my, the ministry. It didn't come from somebody who liked me. But, I mean, he does. It didn't come from somebody who was my friend at that particular point. It came from somebody who had a problem left what God had given them, tried to find wherever they could go and was on enough to come back and say, I mean, that took a lot of courage. That took a lot of honesty for him to come back and say, after all the places we've been and everywhere we went, we couldn't find what we had here. And he says, you just keep doing what you're doing because you're teaching the Bible. 
And I, you know, I, I tell you that to tell you that, you know what? There's people out there that will hurt you when it comes to the Bible. I, I, you have to make your own assessment on this. You have to make your own judgment on this. And I would never presume to say that this is the place or I'm the guy, but I'm going to tell you this. Never let stupid things that come into your life take the greatest book that God ever gave from you when you're being taught it. Now, you're young, you're impressionable, and there'll be people who'll come into your world to have their nose bent on a joint to try to get your nose bent their direction with their nose. And I'm telling you right now, don't ever let somebody take from you what God has given with you over some stupid, asinine issue that when we get into eternity a million years down the road will not matter over the eternal book that God gave you. That is the best advice I can give you, kids. You find you the best guy in the best church that will give you the best shot with that book, and that's where you stick. And that doesn't have to be me, but it has to be somebody. And then you give them your loyalty, you give them your commitment, you let them give you what God gave them, and you make sure that you make sure that the little nitpicky things of this world don't separate you from the greatest book God ever gave you. It doesn't take a special person to really be effective Christian. It just takes a special attitude. You got to love that book and all that it has more than anything else because the devil is out there to take this thing from you. How many times have we all seen when somebody came to church? Well, we saw it just with, we saw it with just uh, all time and time again. And some guy will come to church here and start to get his light put back together and out of nowhere, her old girlfriend will show up. We've seen him where a girl starts coming. She gets here, old boyfriend, calls out of the blue. You know, well, I was just flying around your house in my helicopter and thought I'd stop down and see how you're doing. <laughs> and you know as well as I do how many times we've lost them to that concept. Look, as much as you want to learn your Bible, listen to me. The devil wants you not to learn it. And you can allow yourself to be hooked up with two kinds of people. Those who want to learn it with you or those who don't want to learn it and don't want you to learn it. And you get to choose. This thing is, this thing is much bigger than just a class to learn you and teach you the Bible. You're setting on an, an internal course of your life that's going to set a course and change everything in your life. And you'll bump up against people who don't want that, You'll bump against up people who don't care about that, and you will. You, if you're not careful, they will get their attitude to wash off on your attitude, and they'll take from you the very greatest book that God's ever given you. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. So you need to realize that that book God gave you has key individual words in it that cannot be deviated from. You have to stay with it. And you have to look at this thing differently than anything else you've ever done. Because you have to know that someday you, you, 
you alone are going to stand before God at that judgment seat of Christ, and you're going to give an account about the Bible that God gave you. And I'm going to preach on it tomorrow. You're not going to give an account of what you knew or what you didn't know. You're going to give an account of what you couldn't find out, but you didn't. And many times it's because something or somebody in your world, when God gives you everything that you have, everything that you need, will allow something that is so asininely stupid to take it from you. You've got to guard against that, kids. I'm here with you, you singles, you're the apple of my eye. I brought in the best people I have to help me with you because I want to give you the best shot I can. I ain't kidding you. I want to pour everything I know that I've learned in 40 plus years into your life. I'll give you whatever I got. And I got people here in this room who have been with me as long as you know anybody else on this planet who understand it, who will work with you and help you. If you want help with learning what you get to learn, we're going to get there here for you. That's why we're here. But I want to tell you, not everybody on this planet is going to be happy with where you're at wanting to learn the Bible, including the devil. And he's going to try to throw every roadblock in your life he can. He'll use everybody that he can. You have to determine in your own heart and your own soul what you're going to do with the book that God gave you. It's just that simple. Number 11. Excuse me. Number 10. Always give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. <clears throat> Bible is never wrong. Just get that in your head. I come to a place in the Bible I can't figure it out. It's my problem, not God's. <clears throat> I, I, human nature so easily <clears throat> wants to uh, just find fault with what God does especially when it comes to the Bible. And you always give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. That Bible is true in every aspect of our lives. And you stay with it. You stay with it. You never, 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 never <coughs> approach it from the fact that it is an absolutely perfect, without error, and has everything in it that you and I need. Number 11, never forget the consistency of the Bible. In everything in our Christian life, that is another key word, by the way, consistency. You'll learn the Bible and get a depth in the Bible if you're consistent with the Bible. Your kids will turn out right and do everything that you want them to do if you're consistent with them. Uh, the church will grow and the church will be effective if I'm consistent with it. Uh, everything in our life as a Christian depends on that one word, consistency. Being consistent. Uh, nobody's perfect. Nobody's not a hit of 100% all the time. That's not what God ever asked you to be. He asked you to be consistent. When you fall down, you get up. It's just that simple. I've never faulted anybody for anything that they did, any mistake that they made, because I made my share of mistakes like anybody else. The thing that I fault them for is not getting up when you fall. There's no excuse for that. There is an excuse to fall. There's no excuse not to get up, clean it up, and get back in the fight. That's consistency. Consistency, at the end of the day, you're still standing. Knocked down 20 times, but you're on your feet at 6 o'clock in the afternoon, ready to go. That's consistency. 12. <coughs> and we'll look at this, too. <coughs> the law first mentioned. 
I don't know how many times I've heard college professors make fun and laugh at the, the idea of the law of first mention. And uh, <clears throat> it only goes to show their inability to really understand anything about the Bible. Uh, you're going to find it, the first time you find something in the Bible is usually a place that uh, defines it. And uh, it's a, it's a, you'll find the first time you find uh, some concept used in the Bible, like the word love, uh, this or that, like I'll show you. The first time you find the word love in the Bible is over here in Genesis chapter 22. I'll show you that as an example. Now it says in uh, Genesis 22, and it came to pass after these things, 22.1, that God did tempt Abram, Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. Now that's the first time you find the word love or any form of love found in the Bible. And uh, you should have in time all these marked uh, because it's found in a chapter the first time the word love or lovest that has to do with a man offering up his son, who's a type of Christ, uh, for you and for me. So it's very fitting the Bible concept of love has to do with God loving you enough to die for you. And the first time you find it, it's found right in chapter 22 with a great example of Isaac being offered up as a sacrifice by Abraham, a type of God the Father. And all of the, all of the types fit perfectly. So it's things like that that you want to uh, remember. And you'll always want to mark in your Bible, and I'm, you know, I'm pretty good about it. Uh, uh, look back in chapter 20, since we're here. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> That's the, it says, so Abraham prayed. That's the first time prayer is found in the Bible. So you want to mark those things in your Bible when you find them, and uh, they'll always uh, be significant. And that's why, you know, you find a law first mentioned. First time you find uh, the New Testament church in the Bible, after Acts chapter 7, it'll be the church of Antioch. That's very instructive. And you're going to find that uh, that's the model church. And, of course, it's a thing where every time the law first mentioned is an unwritten law of the Bible, which is absolutely incredible as far as giving you uh, the insight of what you need uh, of understanding things. Then, and I will go through, and as I said, as we go through this, I'll mark, you're going to see, we're going to start putting all these to work for us. You're going to see how I got them in my brain and how every time I'm telling something, you're going to see how they, all these just keep coming. And my goal is to get you to that point. This is, these 15 uh, rules here make up the depth of the Bible. Um, 13, I always take a passage literally until it's impossible for you to take it literally. Now that's a, that's a good rule to follow because uh, when you get into the book of Revelation, it's hard to believe 
that uh, all that's going on there is literal. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, as with most churches today, teach that revelation is allegorical. Allegorical is a big $25 word that simply means it doesn't really mean anything. There's no real meaning to it. It's just symbolism. And, of course, uh, there are places in the Bible where you have symbolism. No question about that. But you have to be able to delineate where it is and where it isn't. I would say that 99% of the time when you find something that is, looks like it's impossible to take literal, you just go ahead and take it literal. And uh, it'll, be a, it'll, it'll always, uh, it'll always uh, be something that is actually happening. It's like I said, when you get over there in the book of Revelation, sometimes it's hard. Uh, one of the things that you find over there is in Revelation 9-1, the bottomless pit opens up and these demonic uh, creatures come out. It's kind of like the Bible version of the walking dead. And they're very grotesque. The Bible says that they have uh, teeth like lions, hair like women, uh, sting, stingers like scorpions. And it's kind of hard in your mind to think of some kind of being like that. So when they get into it, you know, everybody takes those things and tries to make them uh, not literal. It makes them a symbolism of something. And... Uh, you know, I've seen guys do that, and it's always been amazing to me how, how inconsistent that guys are when they do that. They'll talk about the, take the, the, the beasts, these creatures' descriptions, and they'll make it all symbolism. But the Bible says that they come out of the bottom of this pit. They never make that symbolism. How do you take what came out of the bottom of the pit that is real symbolism when they came out of a real place? I mean, if you're going to do it justice, then you've got to make the bottom of the pit not literal. And, of course, it just, this is where I'm at. I tell you, whenever you deviate from the Bible, and this is something you want to remember, whenever you deviate from the Bible, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot someplace. Because when you start deviating it from it, the Bible is built on such a consistency of truth that you just have too many pieces hanging out that make you look like an idiot. Like the bottomless pit thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allegoricalize and I'm going to I'm going to make these beasts not literal, but I'm going to leave the bottomless pit literal. Can't do that. If, you know, allegorical things don't come out of a legitimate place. But that's my point. You're going to cross yourself up somewhere. And the reason for that is, is the Bible is a network that crosses. I'm going to show you in time how that you build a safety net of doctrine in the Bible that keeps you from falling. And it's basically a, an incredible process that God has built into his Bible that keeps you, from, keeps you from falling through. And it's a safety net of doctrine. And uh, you always want to realize that when you're done with whatever you're doing in the Bible, that everything fits. You don't have to get your scissors out and cut the pieces that are sticking out. You know, everything is done. Everything is compact. Everything is fit. Everything is designed to go together just like that. And when you have that ability to do that with the Bible, then you're good. And when you don't have that ability, then you've, uh, you know, you've, you've, you've gotten off the track someplace. And many times it has to do with the legitimacy of making something figurative when it's really literal. Now, the fourth thing, thing here. And to me, this is, the, this is really, from a philosophical aspect, this is the most important thing for you to not realize. I believe a lot of things about the Bible. I'm pretty dogmatic about things about the Bible. I have uh, pretty strong opinions about things that the Bible has pretty strong opinions about. 
I believe that tongues are out of the pit of hell. I believe that losing your salvation is a heresy. I believe that most religions are, are going to send you straight to hell. I got some really strong opinions. But here's where I'm also, and see, because I'm this way, uh, uh, you get, people don't see the other side of me. And no matter what I believe about the Bible and how dogmatic I am about it, I am always prepared to change whatever I have been taught or whatever I have believed when somebody shows me that now goes contrary to the Scriptures. In other words, I don't have to believe anything. I just want to believe the truth. I don't have any pet doctrines. I don't have any things. You take a guy who believes in tongues. He hangs on to tongues like it, like it, you know, that it's the last thing on this planet for him. And you know what? If I thought speaking in tongues was the right thing to do, I, I'd speak in tongues. Uh, you know, I'm not against speaking in tongues. I think it'd be kind of fun. I'm not, I'm not against speaking in tongues. I'm not against healing. I'm not against any of that stuff. I'm really not. But I know where it fits into the time frame of the Bible. And I know that, uh, you know, it's being taught today is wrong. And, you know, anything that I have believed, anything that I have held dear to myself, anything that I have believed, uh, when, when somebody shows me that it clearly goes contrary to the Bible, I, I, will, I will change it in a heartbeat. I don't have any pet doctrines that I just got to hold on to. I just want the truth. I've wanted the truth since the day I got saved. And I don't care what the truth is. And I'm not such a prideful person, though we all have pride problems, and I do too. I'm not such a prideful person that if I'm shown something that I have believed for 40 years is now wrong, that I wouldn't dump it in a heartbeat. Because I may be prideful in some areas of my life, but I'll tell you one area where I'm not prideful, and that is I want everything that God has for me, and I pride is not going to let me keep back the truth just because I want to believe something when somebody shows me the difference. So I'm saying this to you young little minds today. Wherever you go in life, when it comes to that Bible, always be prepared to change whatever you've been taught or whatever you believe when it goes contrary to the Bible. Never make the Bible line up to what you believe. Always line up with you believe to the Word of God. And follow that rule. Change whatever somebody shows you, whatever changes. A lot of you came to this church in our church, maybe not you, but you came from another, another religion. Some of them were Catholic. Some of them were charismatic. Some of them were messed up in other things. And you know what? When they saw the truth, they dumped whatever they had just like that. And I hope they never lose that because that's really where your safety is of getting prideful when it comes to the Bible. You always want to be able to uh, make the Bible line up to what you what it says, not what you want it to say. And uh, I don't, you don't ever, never develop pet doctrines. Hey, I believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. I believe it is, cover to cover, including to cover. But if somebody could prove to me that the NIV, the ASV was a better book, I'd be preaching out of it tomorrow. Yeah, that's just where I'm at. I don't have an axe to grind with the King James Bible. I just know what I know. But if you show me what the truth is, and it's, it's the truth, and I'm in error, I'm with you, man. I don't see any benefit of me hanging on to a lie, do you? When it's going to affect me at the judgment seat of Christ, I'll just take, I want the truth. But truth always has to come through the Scriptures. And so you, you stay pretty clear to it. And then the last thing, and we'll get into this as we come through it, numbers are the key to the Bible. Uh, 
without a doubt, the key to God is mathematics. Mathematics in science is the universal language. Uh, they do it by prime numbers. If they want to find an alien life form out there and want to communicate, they'll do it through numbers. That's their thinking. Because they know that fundamentally all universes, no matter where, all intelligent beings would, would have some kind of numerical system. They, it's universal. So they, they use different aspects, but it's on a numbers system. And uh, God, uh, <clears throat> everything we do in our own life, we do by a number system. We just don't think about it. If I want to call you and talk to you, I got to go through a number system and call you on your cell phone. If I want to come over and visit you, I got to go through a number system on your address. If I want to find where I'm at in Kansas City, I go through a log uh, longitude and latitude. That's a number system. Uh, you know, if you want to find out where you're shipping something to, you got to have a zip code. That's a number system. If you want to call in and do something, you got to have your social security number. Everything we do in life has to have a, has to have a, a number associated with it because everything in the world revolves around numbers. And it's the same way with the Bible. So when you want to find God in your Bible, depending on what you want to find, you got to go, uh, you got 66 books to work with. So you got to go to, you got to go to Exodus, second book, 15th chapter and 12th verse. You got a number system you find God through. And uh, Einstein said one time before he died, when Billy Graham tried to witness to him, he said, I can't accept that God is not a mathematical formula because Einstein was bigger than the math formula. You know, MC squared equals whatever it equals. <laughs> he doesn't know how close he came to finding God with that statement because God is a number system. God does everything by a number system. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where in the Bible you're going to find out that there are certain numbers that mean certain things that are always key and will come through them. Number one in the Bible is always unity. Number two in the Bible is always division. Number three in the Bible is always the completeness of things. Number four in the Bible will be the, of the earth. Number five in the Bible is death. First man dies in the Bible, Genesis 5.5. 5. When you know, you're when you're on a ship someplace and you break down on your Caribbean cruise and they call it in, they call it, you're dead in the water, they call it a number five shutdown. You're in an airplane someplace and you're shot down and your engines fail and they call it, get out there, you get on the key, flip the mic and you say, May Day, May Day, May Day, May Day. Why not June Day, June Day? Why not April Day, April Day, April Day? Why May Day? January, February, March, April, May, see? Fifth month. It's just the way it works. Uh, and so six in the Bible is the number of man. So the Antichrist has the number of man and there's three men connected with him, so it's six, six, six. Seven in the Bible is the number of God. Uh, it's a number of perfection. So God does everything by seven. Eight in the Bible is the new beginnings. So you got earth running six thousand, six, seven, seven thousand years, and the eight thousand, eighth, eighth is the new beginning. Is it that simple? Nine in the Bible is fruitfulness. <clears throat> so you got nine fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. I want to book in Galatians. Galatians is the ninth book in the New Testament. Galatians has nine letters in its name. It's 22, verse 22 and 23 equals nine. A ten is the number of the Gentiles. First Gentile saved in the Bible, found in Genesis, or in uh, first Gentile kingdom, found in Genesis ten ten. First Gentile saved in the Bible, like you and me, is uh, Cornelius in Genesis chapter ten. Uh, that's number 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 you know number twelve is the nation of Israel. Uh, number thirteen is the number of the devil. That's why it's an unlucky number. So you're going to find that certain numbers always mean certain things. And so when you find them in the Bible, it's part of the depth scenario. You find them in the Bible. You pay attention to them, you look at them, and you, many times they'll lead you right to where you need to go. So what I'm telling you here with these 15 rules, you get these things down in your mind. 
you get them working second nature in your life when you come to the Bible. That whenever you look at these things, are just floating and filtering and doing everything that you want to do. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's a thing where, um, you know, once you do that and you start using these things and we start training you in these areas by showing YouTube through association and you're just living there, this will produce a depth for you. This will take you down and give you a depth foundation in your life in the Bible that you, that you won't get just by, you know, and most people, bless their hearts, <clears throat> they, they, they try to learn the Bible and so they'll, 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 do, they'll start reading here, reading here, reading here, and then they'll study this and they'll study that and they'll study this. And I'm not saying you don't learn the things about the Bible that way, but you won't learn the Bible that way. At some point in your life, if you're going to learn the Scriptures and you're going to get a depth to you, you have to start scratch off a place and start getting God's systematic theology down the way we're going to do it. You'll look back 10 years from now, It'll be the greatest thing you ever did because it will legitimize you when it comes to the scriptures and it'll give you a depth to the Bible that you'll never get any other way. Okay? Well, we got through those today. We'll hold up. Next time we get together, we will uh, we'll jump right into it. But you got enough to work with today and we'll start going through the scriptures and looking at things and talking about fundamental things that we're going to talk about. And uh, that's what we'll do.